Well, good evening, Saints. How are you? Good evening. Promise I won't throw cucumbers at you today. (laughs) We're starting to enjoy our new cruising speed of about three chapters per evening. It's turned out to be revelation at the speed of light. Tonight we'll be continuing our pace with the accelerator firmly pressed on the floorboard. We'll be covering Jeremiah 37, Jeremiah 38, and Jeremiah 39. We have exactly a one-slide review for you because we're going to need the time tonight. The Israelites have been breaking the covenant that God cut from the beginning was chapter 34. And the point was, yet God keeps his covenant even when men do not. In chapter 35, The Rechabites had been faithful to their own man-originated covenant. And God uses even those Gentiles to teach his people. In chapter 36, God demonstrates that even though his own people are faithless to the covenant, God will in fact keep his covenant. Now, in addition to what's on that slide, there are a few other things that you'll need to remember from these chapters to better grasp the concepts that you're going to encounter in chapters 37, 38, and 39. So we're just going to work down the line here and give you a few of those. You might want to make a note of them. They're going to come back up this evening. So in chapter 34, you will remember the concept that the nobles and the other leaders, they made an unnecessary and additional covenant to what the Torah already stated concerning Hebrew slaves. The origin of their motives is seen in their operation as the events unfolded. Now, their motives seemed to show to be a show of repentance as they agreed to release their Hebrew slaves. But it was false repentance, only done in the hopes of avoiding the temporal circumstances caused by centuries of sin. In truth, it had nothing to do with pleasing God. In the end... When they felt pressure from the Babylonian siege, when they felt that pressure relax, or when they found relief from that pressure, they recanted in their pious vow to uphold the frivolous and secondary covenant that they had made. They re-enslaved the poor Hebrews of the land. And in verse 17, the Lord proclaims freedom for the nobles and leaders, but not freedom like you and I would think, not braveheart freedom, Freedom to die by the sword. Wow. So in chapter 35, this was a chapter that had an extraordinary contrast in it. The contrast was between men who decided to obey earthly commands generation after generation after generation. And the contrast was between them and chosen sons of God who chose not to obey heavenly commands. The story in chapter 35. It had nothing to do with the consumption of wine, if you guys remember. Praise God. It had everything to do with what the result of faithfulness is or the result of unfaithfulness is throughout the generations. Whether it's good or bad, there will be a result based on your faithfulness. In chapter 36, do you remember King Jehoiakim burned the written scroll, scroll of Jeremiah's prophecies? piece by piece, as he rejected the painful implications of his own condition. 
During these dark days, we must be careful to avoid selective adherence. Do you remember that? Yes. We have to be careful. We may not use a physical knife uh, on our Bibles to cut it up, but the same effect is achieved by underemphasizing or overemphasizing selected texts based on our preferences. Wow. The end of chapter 36 displays God's faithfulness to preserve every word given to Jeremiah and even add more beautiful passages to them. Amen. This is the very nature of our God. He never subtracts from the words that he has given, but he often adds even more beautiful revelation. What we need to be careful to do is not cut out parts of the word before he speaks to us. Aren't you glad we have a God that can add beautiful revelation, but he never goes back on something that he said? Yeah. Yeah. Well, saints, that brings us to the place in the evening where we are going to read 37, 38, and 39. Now I'm going to ask a woman named Booney, affectionately in the Stevens household, (laughs) I'll let you guess the etymology of that phrase, to read all the 37, 38, and 39. Before we do, though, I would like to ask a man of God to pray for us one more time so that we might tune our ears into what the scripture says this evening. Who would like to do that? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that's coming to us tonight, Father. Lord, we say open our eyes to the beauty of your word, Lord God. Let it impact us. Lord God, let it cut us first, mighty God. We want the markings of a priest, Lord God. We want to learn from what you have for us in Jeremiah tonight. Lord, move every last one of us, Father, to be marked, God. Lord, to be impacted by the, the special and supernatural nature of your word, Lord. Move this body, Father. Move us to obedience. And move us, Lord God, to honor your covenant. In the name of Jesus, we pray. All right, go ahead, Booney. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in place of Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah, however, sent Jehoiakim, son of Shelemiah, with the priest of Zephaniah, son of Masiah, to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was free to come and go among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt, and when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Arijah, son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, You are deserting to the Babylonians. That's not true, Jeremiah said. I'm not deserting the Babylonians. 
But Elijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. Mm. They were angry with Jeremiah and had, had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, which they had made into a prison. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him, and he had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, Jeremiah replied, You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What crime have I committed against you or your officials or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you? The king of Babylon will not attack you or this land. But now, my lord, the king... Please listen. Let me bring my petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, or I will die there. King Zedekiah then gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given bread from the secret, I'm sorry, bread from the street of the bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Shephtiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehuchal, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Machalja, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Then the official said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who were left in the city, as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of his people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Machalja, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed, Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed, Melech, went out to the place, palace and said to him, my lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah, the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death, where there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah, the prophet, out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them go down to the ropes to Jeremiah to the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cisterns. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and had him brought to the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you would not listen to me. Sure. But King Zedekiah swore an oath secretly to Jeremiah. As surely as the Lord lives, 
who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who are seeking your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says, if you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down and you and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be handed over to the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from their hands. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians have handed me over to them, and they will mistreat me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you, and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender this, what the Lord has revealed to me, all the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you. Those trusted friends of yours, your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned down. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, do not let anyone know about this conversation, or you may die. If the officials hear that I talked with you and they come to you and say, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you, do not hide it from us or we will kill you. Then tell them, I was pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him. And he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him. For no one had heard the conversation with the king. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day of Jerusalem was captured. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Shazir of Shamgar, Nebo Sharshakim, yeah. the chief officer, oh, yeah. Nergal Sharazes, a high official, and all of the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldier, soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where the pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzunarin, commander of the imperial guard, carried out into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan the commander of the guard left behind the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing, and at that time he gave them vineyards and fields. 
Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do not, but do not for him whatever he asks. So Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a king official, Nergal Shazir, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Hakim, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill any words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you, and you will not fall by the sword, but escape with your life, because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Hey, so there is, uh, there is one thing that is just absolutely abundantly clear. My wife nailed those Babylonians. Everybody in the room is thankful that you were not reading that. Look, so needless to say, we have a massive amount of material to cover this evening. As Brother Linton picks up in verse 1, both for ourselves and for you, we're going to review our placement in history and who the characters in the narrative are so that we know what's going on. Does that sound good to y'all? Yes. Good, because that's what we're going to do. Get verse 1. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in place of Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Man, to be a son of Josiah is a very, very interesting phrase. We want to remind you of the genealogy that Zedekiah descends from. So I have a slide, and I'm going to point out a couple things for you just for review. So Zedekiah is a son of Josiah, physically, genetically. It's very hard to tell by his actions, but he does descend from Josiah through a wife named Hemthuel. Now with that in mind, this means that Zedekiah was the half-brother of Jehoiakim. Can you guys see that parallel about midway through? Uh, So he's the half-brother of Jehoiakim and the uncle of Jehoiachin whom he has just replaced when Nebuchadnezzar installed him. At this point in the book of Jeremiah, we are at the final siege of Jerusalem. This next slide is going to remind you of the timeline and give you an idea of how long Jeremiah has been in ministry, active preaching the words that he has been. So at the top where the red arrow points, you see the phrase, Jeremiah begins prophesying in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. And you see Josiah's reign began in 639 B.C. Well, when you start to work this math out, Jeremiah begins prophesying in the year 626 B.C. And we are right now in our chapter tonight in the year 586 B.C. Friends, that means that Jeremiah has been prophesying about these events for 40 years. I've been ministering for 28 years and that has almost killed me look you've (laughs) taken all of my hair 40 
years. And now the thing that God said is true, but that Jeremiah didn't want to happen any more than anybody else would want it to happen to their family, has happened. Okay, that's, that's what we've just read tonight. Yeah. That in mind, let's pick up in verse 2. Neither he, nor his attendant, nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Man, they have not listened for 40 years. You know, this is one of the many reasons that 40... We're feeling better about our preaching, the pastors and I, right now. <laughs> <laughs> they have not listened for 40 years. Does that number... Ring a bell for you? Now, this passage that we're reading tonight is one of the many reasons that 40 is a number of testing in the Bible. But in your thoughts, compare what's going on in Jerusalem with the 40 years in the desert, 40 years of wandering, 40 years of not listening to Moses, not listening to Aaron, so on and so forth. In this case, though, a faithful generation has not arisen. In 40 years in the desert, at least one generation rose up and they were faithful. But in this place, in this point in Jeremiah, there has been no righteous generation risen up in 40 years. So that means there will be 70 years of captivity. That is the price of this disobedience for such a long time. But you know what? Thank God for two faithful witnesses. Thank God for two faithful witnesses like Ezekiel and Daniel see there's always a remnant there is always in a time of testing in Israel there is always a remnant present let's pick up in verse 3 King Zedekiah sent Jehokal son of Shelemiah with the priest Zephaniah son of Masiah Jeremiah the prophet with this message please please pray to the Lord our God for us wow so King Zedekiah sends a man along with a priest to Jeremiah the prophet, and what's his message? Please pray to the Lord. Pray for us. That sounds decent, doesn't it? I mean, prophet, I know that you're a righteous, holy man. Please say a little prayer to the king of kings for us. Zedekiah's track record, however, it doesn't suggest that he intends to actually submit to the will of God at all. How many times... Have you been privy to a situation where somebody is asking for prayer, but you know there's probably no intention to submit to God's will here? How many times have you been that person? Lots. At this point, as you contemplate what Pastor just said, with some personal application to us, everyone in the room needs to take note concerning prayer. We're going to talk about this for a little bit. Prayer... The purpose of prayer in our lives is to incline your heart to God's will, not to persuade God to incline his heart to what you think that you want. We have a slide. This is a slide of the tabernacle. This is something that has been an incredible revelation for us in the past several years. We love praying through the tabernacle because praying through the tabernacle is a heavenly pattern. Something that has come down from the heavens that the Lord has revealed in his word and is manifesting on the earth. When we pray through the tabernacle, we start at the gates of praise. We start at the gates of praise to help incline our hearts toward the character of the God that we seek to serve and seek to pray and commune with. 
Then we move on to the bronze altar, where we are working to sacrifice and burn up our own sinful nature so that we can begin to see the will of God rightly. From there, we move on to the labor. That's number three. And at the labor, the Spirit of God begins to wash us, begins to show us who we are in Him. Amen. He washes us clean, wipes the slate clean for us, and then we begin to be able to see rightly what our function is in the kingdom. Then we get to number four, the menorah. At the menorah, the Holy Spirit is paramount. The Holy Spirit is key. And we begin to direct our attention to the Spirit of God and His holiness, thanking Him for His work in our lives and thanking Him for what He is going to do. Number five is the table of showbread, where we put our other hand up and we contemplate the Word of God, its truth, its perfection, what it accomplishes in our lives and in the lives of our family and those around us. That moves us on to number six, the altar of incense. And number six is paramount to what we're teaching tonight. Yeah. It's paramount because when you get to the altar of incense, it's not a give me, give me, give me, let me do this, let me do that, save me from this, save me from that. The altar of incense, by the time you get there, it is designed that your vision becomes God's vision. Amen. That your desires become God's desires. That his spirit and his word are working inside of you. And he has changed you to the point where you can offer a prayer and incense to the heavens that is exactly in line with his will. Amen. Amen. And then we get to number seven, where the Ark of the Covenant in the, holy, the most holy place where we get full communion with our Father. Look, Peyton is going to hand out some scripture that will help illuminate this process for us. But I want to reemphasize something for you. Prayer is not to incline God's will to your will. Prayer is to incline your will towards God's. That means that prayer does not degenerate into your Christmas list. Lord, this is what I'd like to happen. I just thought I would check in with you today and tell you what my priorities for you to do are. Prayer is the beginning of you submitting your life to him, saying, what would you like to accomplish today? Yeah. So it may sound impressive, just like has happened many times in our lives, that Zedekiah says, please pray to the Lord for me. The answer should be, hell no, I will not do that. And the reason that I will not do that is you have no desire to do the things that God has been saying for 40 years. If you want, I'll pray that the fear of judgment come on you. Yeah. If you want, I'll pray that God strike you dead now before you harm the rest of your family. But no, I will not pray that God bless you with all of your heart's desires like, a, like Pedro in voting for him <laughs> in Napoleon Dynamite. God is not your genie. He is the master of the universe. Amen. He is the God of all men. And the very fact that you sit in here tonight and breathe is an example of his goodness and his graciousness to you. Amen. You cannot move the heart of God to do what you want him to do. That's right. But you can move your heart to do what he wants you to do. Amen. Let me hand out some scripture. Ben, can you take Deuteronomy 5, 29? Yes, sir. Spencer, can you take Isaiah 30, 19?
18 through 22. Caleb, can you take Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3? Uh, Elder Bosch, Ooh. will you take Matthew 6, 7 through 13? And Ibrahim, can you take Revelation 16, 5 through 7? And Paul, Romans 8, 26 through 27. All right, let's start out with Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. It says this, Oh, that their hearts will be inclined to fear me. What was that first word, Ben? I missed it. Oh! You got pause a second for me. Doesn't that sound good, saints? As soon as he hears you, he will answer you. Somebody tell me that's good. says maxi pads. Yeah, it's uh, updated edition. Saints, do you notice that in reference to God's holy chosen people, when they're approaching the throne of God, that they first have to call out to him and go through the affliction that God has ordained in advance? It wasn't the removal of the situation prior to hearing his voice. The only way they could arrive at hearing his voice was through the affliction. In hearing this voice, this voice speaks to them, not about their wildest desires, not about their wildest dreams, but about how to carry out his will and begin to desecrate idolatry and treat the sinful habits that have been in their life up to this point like maxi pads that just need to be thrown away. Amen. This is the nature of prayer. It is a transformative experience that causes you to line up with the will of God and affects change upon the earth. Nothing about Zedekiah's request has anything to do with the will of God. In fact, his request is simply a gimme, gimme list, a Christmas wish list, something that he would like done according to his will. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Caleb, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Draw near to do what? To listen. And where is this taking place at? The house house of of God. God. 
We do not go into prayer to tell God what we want him to do. Think about how arrogant that is. You go to listen to find out what he wants you to do. Friends, if we didn't cover anything else tonight, that's a gem. That's a gem that you need to take to heart seriously. In our crazy charismatic world, we, we get really excited about binding and loosing and rebuking and stating and Lord, your word says the only thing you really need to be concerned with is what does God want done on this earth? And if that's not the sole priority in your life, then your life is a total waste on the earth. That's true. Hey, Caleb, would you pick back up? For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Wow. Perhaps the only thing that is worse than entering the house of God as a fool and offering foolish words to him would be to try to persuade a righteous man of God to go be a fool for you. (laughs) But it happens at this altar all the time. Pastor, I'm not going to do anything you told me to do last week. I'm not going to do what's plainly written here, but please pray for me. I'm praying for the courage of Jeremiah. No. But I won't go to a church like that. Well, you're not experiencing church now. See, this is an important concept. You realize that three times in the book of Jeremiah, three times, God has already told him, do not pray for these people. He told him that in Jeremiah 7, 16. He told him that in Jeremiah 11, 14. He told him that in Jeremiah 14, 11. Do you think God's serious about this? But I can hear it now on social media and next week's court witness list. That church won't even pray for me. There's no prayer in the world that I could offer for you if you will not do God's will. What would I be asking for? I can tell you what my private prayer is. Just and true are your judgments, O oh God. Yeah. Look, it's important to understand that God has already decreed the outcome of these events. If we're praying for anything, it's to be able to stand through them and glorify God. Praying that they don't happen is a fool's errand. You can sow enough seed in your life that there is no way to avoid what must come upon you because of it. But what you can pray is that God give you the courage to stand through it and glorify his name. Like you had sex outside of wedlock and now there is a baby. Oh God, please don't give me this baby. Too late, friends, it already happened. If you pray anything, pray that you be a decent human being and learn to raise your child. Okay. Hey, why don't we look at how Jesus prayed? Matthew 6, 7 through 13. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition. Woo! How about that? As the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now, I don't like interrupting Elder Bodge, but that enough right there ought to cause us to change the way we pray, right? Yeah. How many times have you heard somebody just repeating the same thing, the same thing, the same thing? How many times have you been that person? Be honest, does it make you feel more spiritual to just sit there and pray a lengthy prayer? I like to do it in King James. It makes me feel very spiritual. Yeah. 
Keep going, Elder Bush. It's like being given another tongue. <laughs> Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. All right, so I have a question. Why do you even need to pray if your Father knows what you need before you ask? Because he's not interested in you hearing, he's not interested in you saying what you need. He wants your heart. Come on, how ridiculous is it to ask for a Christmas list? It's like, Lord, I need this. Lord, I need this. And he's just waiting for you to incline your heart. That is the purpose of prayer is to incline your heart. Not tell God what he already knows. All right, verse 9. Pray then this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, we also forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power and glory forever. Amen. It's interesting to note that this prayer contains elements of the tabernacle within it. Come on. But you know, this is not only the model for a faithful prayer, but it's also an indictment against Zedekiah's request. If Zedekiah wanted the will of God, then he would not have ignored nearly 40 years of preaching on this subject. You know, you can save yourself a lot of time when someone asks you for prayer by just looking at their fruit. Do they really want what they're praying? Do they really want to incline their hearts to God? It's not hard to tell. Okay? He could have, he could have at any time chosen to obey God, but he chose not to for 40 years. Now, be very careful how quickly you write Zedekiah off in your thoughts, though. Christians do what Zedekiah is doing in nearly every service that we've ever had. They know that there's an issue. They've been talked about it several, talked with several times about it. They won't correct it, and yet they'll ask for prayer about X, Y, and Z that is totally related. We do this all the time. When we already know what God's will is, but to continue to ask for our will instead this is zedekiah like behavior hey have you ever been corrected about an issue in your family yes and then you start press can you pray for me that this issue would go away no do what you've been told and it would fix the issue be raised up as a man of god who's got revelation 16 5 through 7 
discern God's will. And we must partner with his will. We must partner with what he wants to accomplish. It's shocking that none of our preaching, none of our teaching has ever dealt with this subject before. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the first time that I'm hearing about it. Yeah. All of heaven says just and true are the judgments of God. Well, guess what? Earth, we on earth are supposed to be a reflection of the righteousness right. and the holiness of our king in the heavens. Yeah. Yeah. Revelation 15.5, it's a very similar scene, and it's clear that the judgments proceeding from the tabernacle of God, all the judgments that are coming down to the earth, they're coming from a heavenly tabernacle that God is dwelling in. It's one of the many reasons that we pray through the tabernacle in this church. We want to get control. We want to get our hands on this concept tonight. We're not going to be talking about current events. We're not going to go into that. But if you look around you for just a moment about what's happening all around us, watch what happens when the flood of dissipation reaches our doorstep. Watch what happens when people start questioning the just the justice and the truth of God. Watch what happens when that happens and watch the doors fly open and people leaving the Lord and leaving their faith in droves. When we partner with God on the earth and proclaim just and true are his judgments, you have something to hold on to. You have security in the midst of chaos all around you. There are crazy things that are going to happen in this world coming up right on your doorstep. You need to get a hold of this concept and get a hold of it now and figure out what the Lord's will is and partner with him on the earth. <laughs> As Peyton picks up in Romans 8, if we were standing in Goshen in today's society and the Nile turned to blood, the world would be crying out not about their unrighteousness. They wouldn't be crying out about the futility of serving pagan idols. They would be crying out about how unfair it is that a rare species of fish died in the process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Who has Romans 8, verse 26 and 27? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The Spirit helps us in our what? Our weakness. And he intercedes for God's people in accordance to what? His will. Now, you're going to hear us hint at it, not just in Monday nights, but in everyday conversation, that the days of ease, the days of comfort, are swiftly approaching an end. Difficulty is coming to our doorstep. And the Lord is bringing things to the forefront, like our prayer life, so that we can what? Partner with him when those dark days come. Now, as it pertains to Jeremiah 37 tonight, and letting the Spirit intercede, realize Zedekiah is not being moved by the Spirit of holiness to request prayers. He's being moved by fear of consequence. Ah. Mm. But sadly, he remains committed to a wrong course of action, even while requesting prayers. He has no inclination towards God's will and has no intention to change. Now, if you want to avoid Zedekiah-like prayer requests, then tonight circumcise your heart yeah. and be determined to obey 
at any and all cost. Then the Spirit will guide you into the will of God. Hallelujah. Brother Linton, I'm going to have you read 4 through 8, but after you read 4, I'm going to interrupt you. That was worth going through. It was. Yeah. We also have a significant amount to cover. So you're going to hear us pick up a pace, but you're going to stay with us because we're family, right? Yeah. Oh, and there's, there's mind-blowing revelation coming. Amen. That was mind-blowing practical application. <laughs> you're about to get mind-blowing revelation. Oh. <laughs> now, Jeremiah was free to come and go among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. Man, you guys know a little bit about what is to come in Jeremiah's time. Not yet is kind of a foreboding phrase here. He's free right now, but he won't be later. This is a foreboding phrase and a sign of what is about to take place in Jeremiah's day. Yeah. Almost as if it's the right word for the right time for us. Yeah. Why don't we get five through eight? Pharaoh's army has marched out of Egypt. And when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about him, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. Now, look, we're going to dive into this just a little more. There, there is a lot at play here. Armies struggling and the will of God proves out every time. But I want to give you some backstory first from a prophet that spoke about these events 140 years earlier. It's Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Now, that doesn't seem today like you would really have to say that if you looked at the Egyptian military. <laughs> Sorry, Abibi. But at the time, <laughs> Egypt was a superpower, man. When we're talking about horses and chariots, they were filled with them. The might. tanks of their day was their might. You really could put this in today's terms by speaking to an Afghani saying, do not depend upon America. Wow. They are mortals. They are liars. And you cannot depend on them. You need to depend on me. Wow. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help, will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Now Zedekiah is who we're talking about tonight. And his officials should not be placing their trust in Egypt. They should be calling out in agreement with the judgments of God and asking for his mercy in their lives. What is it about human nature that looks back to the last thing that enslaved them and says, you know what? Maybe this time it'll benefit me. But how many times have you returned to your own vomit hoping for a moment of freedom, a moment of relaxation, a moment of slavery? Now, there are multiple biblical patterns in what my father just said. 
But there's a, a specific prophetic pattern that I just want to allude to for a little while. If you were to peruse Daniel 11, yeah. the king of the south, Egypt, is crushed before the king of the north when the king of the north invades. Now the king of the south is crushed and falls before the king of the north then turns to the beautiful land and brings about a final siege hmm. on Jerusalem. It's just interesting how the prophets seem to paint the exact same picture in repetitions again and again, almost as if God is trying to show us something. Now, all men and women of God need to come to grips with the reality that we have many things that we trust in rather than God. Whether we call it Egypt or we call it America, the things that you lean upon instead of the Lord. Now, when we do these things, it's a rather painful lesson that we have to be taught. The Lord is good and he's kind, and he will teach us not to rely upon false gods. Yeah. I can tell you I've experienced that in my life. Sometimes it leaves a scar or two. I'm That's right. the kindness of a father teaching his people. You cannot lean upon Egypt. Yeah. One of my favorite psalms on this subject is Psalm 20, beginning in verse 6. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Come on. You can read that in Hebrew. It's, it's really that Yahweh gives victory to his Messiah. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with victorious power from his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in Abram's tanks and others in Apache helicopters. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen. See, all real help comes from the heavenly sanctuary. That is, the tabernacle. This is done by trusting in the name of the Lord. It's done by preferring His will to your own will. The Bible continually warns Israel that they will come into a time of Jacob's trouble precisely because they are trusting in false security alliances with their neighbors. That is a repeated theme from Matthew 24 to Daniel. It's, it's most of the book of Jeremiah. All too often, we rest assured that Israel will learn that lesson, forgetting that we have the exact same problem. How often do you feel secure in the things of this world, which the Bible says is passing away? We must learn to draw our confidence from being in the will of God and in the will of God alone. That's where our confidence has to come from. Yeah. Yeah. Now, back to a historical note. How dominant must Babylon have been? Think through this for a second. They're able to leave the siege and go back and defeat Pharaoh Hophra and still return and complete the siege. Yeah. So imagine that you and I are fighting in the parking lot and I have beaten you into a place where I'm like, now you're not finished yet, but I'm going to go take on Cody for a while and then come back and finish you off. How dominant is Babylon? Now, if you want to read more about Pharaoh Hophra, then make a note. Read Jeremiah 44. Our time doesn't permit us tonight to teach on that and we'll do it again when we go through it. Let's pick up in verse 9 and read down through 10. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire...
entire Babylonian army that is attacking you, and only the wounded men were left in their tents. <laughs> they would come out and burn this, burn down the city. Okay, God is not saying that Babylon will not temporarily withdraw. In fact, they did. He is just saying that it will only be temporary. Yeah. You have to admire here, though, that God has a sense of humor. Yeah, I love it. Contrast what he says. And if only wounded men were left in the tents, they would come out and burn the city down. With what is said in 2 Samuel 5, verse 6 through 7. It says, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. They actually thought that. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is called the city of David. (laughs) My, my, how the tables have turned because of sin. When the king is after the will of God, as David was in 2 Samuel, then even when the armies of Israel appear to the enemy as blind and lame, Israel still prevails because it's God's will. However, in this case, in Jeremiah, in the same city, Jerusalem, God is saying even if the enemy was blind and lame, they would still beat Israel because the event is of the will of God. Do you see the reversals there? The will of God is the focal point. Now might be a good time to remind everyone in this room of an encounter that Joshua had. Do you want to hear that? Yes. That's in Joshua 5, 13 through 15, and Nick is going to take us through that. Somebody say the will of God is everything. The will of God is everything. Joshua 5, 13 begins, and it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Or for our enemies. Good. My Christmas list or theirs? What do you think he said? Neither. I'm not for you or your enemies. Wow. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. come on. Yeah. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? Good job, Joshua. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. How many times in your life have you been at a crossroads, a seeming impasse, and you're like, Man, I can either go left or right. Man, it seems like like it's either this decision or it's that decision. And you're like praying about those two decisions. And, oh, man, it's so unclear. The Lord's not answering my prayer. I don't get what's going on. Yeah, well, what if the Lord has a third decision that you haven't even considered yet? What if you haven't submitted to the will of God yet, and he's not answering you because your vision is myopic? Your decisions that you decided to place in front of you, they're too myopic and closed off for the Lord to be able to speak into your situation. Hey, can I just engage with you for a minute? How many of you feel up to the stature of Joshua? Yeah, not one hand went up in the room. And in all of Joshua's might, in all of Joshua's calling, in all of the anointing that is on this man, what is the one thing that God needed him to do? Take off your shoes, boy. I promise you, 
Prayer is to change you, not God. I promise you. What it reveals to you is what must go away from your life. What is clouding your thinking. What it reveals to you is what has not died at an altar but must so that you can partner with what God decided he would do before you were born. Man, if he only had to take off his shoes, he was doing pretty good. In my life, a whole lot more needs to be taken off than just my shoes. Yeah. You see, tonight, we're trying to tell you that you can hear from God. Yeah. You absolutely, positively can hear from the Lord. But it takes you taking off your own will and desires first and asking him to be his partner, asking him to be his ambassador, asking him to be his hands and feet on the earth. And he longs to respond to a man or a woman who comes to him in that kind of state. Yeah. Look, our lives are to be about accomplishing God's will and not our own. And when they are, you watch the amount of revelation and the way that he chooses to speak to you in profound ways. The profound truth that we must grasp tonight, even if you are blind and lame, physically or in other ways, or even if you feel like you're blind and lame, like you don't have what it takes, but you are bent on carrying out the will of God, then you absolutely will prevail. He absolutely will speak to you, and he will give you the strength to do it. However, even if your enemy is the one that's blind, your enemy is the one that's lame, but you choose to act in your own will, even when you look strong or feel strong, you may lose terribly. Mm. Let's get verse 11 and 12. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. Now, we're not going to go into the Hebrew phrasing tonight because (laughs) time's kind of a limiting factor for us. But you should know that the original text says something to the effect of Jeremiah went to separate himself in the midst of the people. Some commentators assume that Jeremiah went to get the land that his cousin acquired for him in chapter 32. Do you remember that? With Hanamel? But that presents a pretty significant chronological issue, and it would seem odd since Jeremiah knew that the captivity was imminent. Right? Does that make sense? It, It is also possible to read the passage as Jeremiah going to separate himself from the Judean leadership in the midst of his own countrymen for another reason. Presumably spiritual refreshment, to get alone. It actually reminds us of Jesus after John the Baptist died. He went away, but the crowds followed him. You can find this in Matthew 14. Jeremiah, like Jesus, was trying to get away, but no matter what he did, there was always a situation around him. And here, we're going to see that Jeremiah's situation is going to intensify. So let's go ahead and go to verse 13. But when he reached the Benjamin Gate, captain of the guard, whose name was Arabia, son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, corrected him and said, you are deserting to the Babylonians. <laughs> the number of ridiculous accusations that I have heard over the years, I don't even feel like repeating. But we relived a bunch of them today, though. Yeah, <laughs> probably not the healthiest practice, but it was surely entertaining. People who attack those who stand for the will of God are often irrational. Yeah, yeah. To put it very, very politely, yes. if Jeremiah is defecting, 
then he is heading the wrong direction. Think about the geography here. They're besieging, and you can look at it in your own time, okay? It's far more likely that Elijah, the grandson of a man named Hananiah, which the text felt the need to give you his genealogy for a reason, from chapter 28, if you remember, and he simply has a nefarious motive for this accusation because there's a chip on his shoulder from when his grandfather had a prophecy about dying in a year after false prophecy. Jeremiah 28, 15. I'm just going to read you a few verses out of it. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth so that you can't keep doing that. Yeah. This very year, you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. Merry prophecy, right? In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died because Jeremiah actually heard from the Lord. So Elijah here, the grandson of this man, may just be taking a little petty vengeance on Jeremiah because of this prophetic event. Now, let's see how this progresses and pick up in 14 and 15. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not reading Babylonians, but Elijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. They were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, which they made into a prison. Well, let's suppose that Jeremiah was going back to Anatoth to settle his property. That's a pretty bad defection plan. Let's suppose that he's going back to the territory of Benjamin or Anatoth to separate himself among the people because he's a little sick of the Judean leadership and needs to breathe. That's also a bad defection plan. So what was this response? It's not true. Beginning and end of his defense. I've learned a lot from reading Jeremiah. It's not true. It's interesting that Jeremiah has faithfully discharged his duties of his ministry for 40 years. How do you expect to be treated after 40 years of faithful service? Suit and a tie and a big marble pulpit. Here are a few New Testament (laughs) reminders for you so that you can set your expectations on what your 40-year bonus is going to (laughs) include. Luke 23, starting in verse 28. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothing by casting lots. Did Jesus discharge the duties of his ministry pretty well? Yes. What was this reward? They crucified him. What makes us entitled to the kind of expectations we have? Come on, Jeremiah and Jesus suffered greatly for the will of God. 
And so will any real follower of the way. Amen. Look, Revelation 2, 10 through 11 is an admonishment to the church. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. I think by this passage, it's time for us to reassess what successful ministry looks like. Looks like being receiving a crown of life after faithfulness up to death. But if that's not enough for you, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13 says, In fact, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted, will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, next time you see images of Afghanistan on your television, remember that the Christians there love the Lord enough to suffer for God's will. And let that move you to similar faith rather than pity or humanitarian charity. That has nothing to do with advancing God's will on earth. In fact, I believe that God is putting this on the television for us to say, Lord, don't leave us out. Hallelujah. You can either throw these portions of scripture in Jehoiakim's fire, the portions that we just read. You can throw them in Jehoiakim's fire fire, or you can endure the fires of persecution like a man of God. And you will receive what a man of God receives. Let's pick up in verse 16 and read 17 as well. Not a new word. <laughs> we absolutely love this one. We were reading it earlier today. First of all, verse 16, he was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon. And by the way, he remained there a long time. Yeah. We don't know exactly how long it was. The word of God just says it was a long time. It was enough. Also, Numbers 23 verse 19 teaches us something very important about the character of God says, God is not a man that he should lie. See, people repetitively asking for a different outcome, that's not God's will. It, it does not move God. It doesn't move him, flex him to do what that person wants him to do. Changing your heart toward his word is what moves God. Yeah. Amen. Changing yourself, changing your position, your desires, saying that phrase to him, Lord, don't leave us out. Lord, don't leave us out from your will. That, that, when you say that to the king of kings and you mean it, that's something that moves God's heart. Now, on a humorous note, just because we wanted to uh, highlight it for you. Yeah, Jeremiah, he says, yeah, of course I have a word. It's the same word that I had for the last 40 years. <laughs> Jeremiah's being frank. 
Yes, you're going to be handed over to the king of Babylon. What do you think I'm going to say? Am I going to change my character? My God's character has not changed. Verse 18 and 19, please. Then Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What crime have I committed against you or your officials or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you? The king of Babylon will not attack you or this land. Can you hear him say, Zedekiah, what's the deal? I prophesied everything that would happen, and I'm in prison? Where are the guys who are saying that everything was going to be okay, and that actually didn't happen? They set up false expectations, and yet they get to go free. But remember, Israel had a remarkably effective self-correcting professional development program. <laughs> they really did. You remember Deuteronomy 18? They were supposed to kill them if what they said didn't come to pass. I say that's an effective program, but here it's not being put into practice. So one must really wonder, why is Jeremiah in jail and the false prophets living in rewards? I believe it's a sign of the times when true prophets are imprisoned and false prophets are rewarded. But that's not happening today, is it? I want to share some scriptures with you. This is 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 5. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Come on. LCN. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. Mm. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is what Zedekiah is not doing in his time. He's he's actually losing his mind and just listening to all the soothsayers. And he's not stopping at just one bad decision. He's doubling down. He's punishing the prophets who are actually doing what is right and speaking for the Lord. Mm. Consider John 16, 16. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. You hear the tone? These things are going to happen. Don't be surprised. But people will always punish people who side with the will of God. Yeah. But we know where our, our fate is, where we end when we stand with the will of God. And every day we wake up and we pray through the tabernacle. And we say, Lord, I'm putting down my will. Before I even ask you what to do, Lord, show me what I'm supposed to ask you to do. What is your will? What are you doing? And what is my part in it? Let's go ahead and go to verse 20. But now, my lord the king, please listen. Let me bring my petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, or I will die there. King Zedekiah then gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given bread from the street of the bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. All right. So he's now throwing some tithes or breadcrumbs at the prophet. But you can tell he's still not obeying the word of the Lord. Guys, are you catching this? Yes. 
And it's not going to be rewarded on the day of judgment, those tithes and breadcrumbs. That's not a substitute for actual obedience. In fact, it's going to be a testimony against Zedekiah on that day because it shows that he knew it was right. He just didn't have the courage to do what was right. Hey, we're speaking about men that know the truth but do not obey it. And our society is rife for those things. We are going to elevate in this room. Hey, uh, very quickly, because we're going to move through 38 and 39 at a lightning pace. Get something. Tithing. Most churches would tell you that's good. Tithing while disobeying the word of God in other areas is an indictment against you. Because it shows that you know that it's right enough to invest in, but not enough to do what God says. So the church attitude that says, well, as long as their butts are in the seat and they throw some money in a plate, they're making people more guilty, not less. And I don't want that to be you. Okay? If you care enough to give to this ministry, then you should care enough to do what we are teaching. Amen. And if you don't, keep your money and get out. Yeah, yeah man. Amen. Good word. Yeah. Well, let's pick up in verse 38, <laughs> or chapter 38. Shebatiah, son of Matans, Gedaliah, son of Peshur, Jehokal, son of Shelemiah, and Peshur, son of Malchijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. Wow. Accepting God's judgments and glorifying his name, that's the right response. Kicking against them is not only denying God's will, it's effectively denying God's sovereignty. Wow. You might as well spit in God's face and say, you are not God. Mm. Hey, what's verses uh, 3 through 4? Okay, so there's two issues with this worth briefly noting. First, the very man making the accusation is also responsible for needless death and destruction because if he accepted God's will, fewer people would die in the siege. He's doing the same thing he's accusing Jeremiah of. Then secondly, even if his accusation was true and Jeremiah was scared and spreading fear, Deuteronomy 20, which many of you should be familiar with, doesn't say kill the man when he's afraid at wartime. It says send him home. But they just resort to killing him. That is where they found Jeremiah, by the way, in the territory of Benjamin, most likely on the way to Anathoth. So he was on his way home. They should be sending him home anyway, but they decide to kill him all all the more. Sounds a lot like what goes on in most churches. Now let's get to verse 5. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. Why is that? Why did he say the king can do nothing to oppose you? He's the king. The buck stops with him. Maybe put the vice president in charge. Ah, you know, there might be something to that here. Why can Zedekiah not oppose officials that are in the wrong and that work for him? We're not going to have any president, more President Biden jokes tonight. We're going to move right past that. We're not going to have talk on shadow presidencies, more talk on cowardice. 
or even talk on mental decline tonight because this is a Bible study. We don't do things like that. But the answer to the question is, it's because, J it's because the king is a reed that sways in the wind. He's not an oak tree. He's a reed. Jeremiah, however, he's an oak of righteousness. Amen. Amen. We're going to keep moving here, but we did want uh, to have a time of reflection about a word that we received on Sunday morning. It was on the 8th. It was just a couple weeks ago. Listen to this word of prophecy. I am the good shepherd, and I am speaking to my flock. You have heard my word, and you have heard of my victory, but many of your hearts sink because you feel further from it than ever. You feel weaker than ever. Now are the days that I strengthen the feeble knees, that I strengthen the weak hands, that your current circumstances are weak, that I might make you strong. I brought about your deflation so that I might bring about my exaltation. That in this, I have given you a vision about a victory that I will bring about, that I am teaching you that it will not be by your own hand, but it will be by my empowerment. I will give you strength of conviction. You will not waver like a reed any longer. I am raising up oaks of righteousness in humble circumstances. Amen. That, they may be, that they may forget the pain at the age to come. Let e each of us in this room endeavor to stop swaying in the, in the wind like a reed. Amen. The choices you have to make often only feel difficult because you don't want to do what you know that God wants you to do. That's the only reason why it feels like a difficult choice. Yeah, y'all y'all should have acknowledged that. Yeah. Because it's true. Yes. You're sitting in paralysis and you cannot make decisions because you actually don't want to do what God has told you to do already. Otherwise, this would not be so hard or painful. If it takes you six months to make a decision, it is because you already know what you're supposed to do and just don't want to do it. Yeah. Grow up. This is game time. Real time. Yeah. Oaks do not sweat. Oaks don't say, I can do nothing to oppose you when God has put you in a position of authority, husbands. Yeah. Fathers. Oaks don't say that. Oaks pray. They figure out what God's will is. They get in line with it. And they leave their home in shalom. Amen. Verse 6, please. So they took Jeremiah and put him in the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. Lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Mm, down in the mud. Realize Jeremiah is older than 60 years old at this point. Woo. Now, as he's being lowered into the mud, I wonder if he reflected on David's psalm. Psalm 40, 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Now, those of you who are mystics like us may also see elements of Joseph's life displayed here as a shadow and type of both Messiah and all his true followers. Consider Genesis 37, 23-24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Men of God.
God are often plunged into the mud for refusing to go along with the carnal consensus. But in the end, every man of God will be raised to the place of glory with Messiah. Amen! Now the same cannot be said for men who give in to the carnal consensus, who uh, crumble when irrational Elijah come knocking on their door, leveling their accusations. Men of God can say, that's not true. I have partnered with the will of God, and you have to break me. You have to kill me to get me to deny what I know God has proclaimed his will is. At this point, let's go to verse 7. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord, the king. These men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a system where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Guys, this is one of our favorite characters in this narrative this evening. I want to show you a slide that will give you a better understanding of his name. Abed-Melech, it means servant of a king. Abed-Melech is not so much a name as an untranslated phrase being used like a name. Yeah. It's a title. It means servant of the king, like in a designated position. In the scripture, when the Holy Spirit, our comforter, shows up by type. You guys know what I mean by type? Representations. He's always an unnamed servant that has a specific function. Right after Abraham offers Isaac in Genesis 22, in chapter 24, he takes an unnamed servant who we know his name is Eleazar from other passages, but in the passage he's unnamed. But he is in the role of the Holy Spirit that is getting a bride for the promised son, Isaac. In the book of Ruth, Boaz is introduced to Ruth by an unnamed servant, man. Sounds like Paul promising his people to Christ. It is a servant that is drawing men nearer to the Father. John 16, verse 13 puts it this way. It tells us why the Holy Spirit shows up as a type of an unnamed servant. It says he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, a servant of the king. We're intrigued that this Abed, Malak, this servant to the king, is a comforter to Jeremiah, the prophet of God. In this way, he is a type of the Holy Spirit, and Jeremiah is a type of Christ throughout the entirety of the book. As we have demonstrated many, many times before in comparisons between Jesus and Jeremiah, the whole story has resurrection themes that are associated with it, and you'll see as it progresses. When you think about it from that vantage point, that he has been lowered and the Spirit is attending to him. Hear this in verse 10 as we progress. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, take 30 men from, from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the Look, uh, either Jeremiah is uh, really fat, which I think is probably not true because he's starving, (laughs) or perhaps the 30 men should be viewed in the light of the 30 mighty fighting men that assisted the rise of King David out of obscurity. Or maybe in that kind of light, you could think of Beniah leading the men who would be like Obed-Melech, In fact, 2 Samuel 23 says it this way in verse 22. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. 
He too was famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30. He was not included among the three, and David put him in charge of the bodyguard. This is very much like Ebed-Melech is playing the role of Benaiah as well. And there's 30 men with him. And their sole goal is to accomplish God's will in making David king. Except Ebed-Melech's goal is not to make Jeremiah king. It's to show that God is king and that his word has been delivered through Jeremiah. Look at verse 11. Now, if we had many more hours, we would go through this hermeneutically for you, but we don't need to. I think you probably get it. The passage evokes the gentleness with which the Spirit often raises the sincere believer out of the mire of his humiliating circumstances. Okay, there's padding under his arms. He's helping him. Apparently, Jeremiah was stuck pretty deep in the mud. Look at verse 12 and 13. Friends, know this for certain. Whether Ebed-Melech is taken as a man that symbolizes the Spirit of God or you see him in the role of Benaiah, these kinds of valiant deeds for God on behalf of the righteous, they will never be forgotten, not in this age and not in the age to come. Matthew 10.42 says exactly that. Justin, will you pick up in 14 and read through 16? Then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you would not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore this oath secretly to Jeremiah. As surely as the Lord lives, who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who are seeking your life. Man, he swore an oath secretly. On what basis, if you were Jeremiah, could you trust this assurance? None. You see, you can't because Zedekiah is a reed and not an oak. You can trust an oak when you're climbing on it that it will never break. You cannot trust a reed at all even when the wind blows on it because it is always bending. Look, my brothers, it is so important that we endeavor to be an oak that we are repulsed by reed-like tendencies even in ourselves. When we find ourselves bending, we need to be repulsed by that, and we need to become more oak-like. Look, we're going to read a couple passages on this theme because it's a pretty important one for all of Christendom. Matthew eleven two through 15 says, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not... What did you go out to see? 
a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces, like like Zedekiah. Zedekiah. (laughs) Look, we love the prophets because they do not bend. Even if they have to break, they will not bend, but they will break if they have to. Compromising kings should be repugnant, especially if you find their behavior in you. That is the biggest focus you can have on your own life is to destroy reed-like tendencies in any form or fashion in your heart. It's better to be thrown into a cistern for having conviction than to live in the palace without any conviction. I would rather be in the mud with my convictions than live in a palace like a reed-like king. Hey, Nick, what does Isaiah 61, 2 through 4 say? So glad that you asked, Justin. It says this. (laughs) To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called... Oaks of righteousness. Amen. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. See, when you're an oak of righteousness, you put his splendor on display. Come on. When you choose not to move, the display the splendor of the King of Kings is put on display for all to see. And oaks are what we are becoming in this house. Amen. Amen. That's better. On another note, as we move forward, remember something. The most flattering and favorable things have always been said immediately before betrayal. Hmm. You're going to see that here in Matthew 26, verses 47, that Parsons is going to get for us, that even kisses tend to... To precede betrayal. Matthew 26 verses 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a very large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged. Wow, changed his name there. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Jesus uh, is the man. Arrest him. Go at once to Jesus, Judas said. Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus. Man, sometimes there's multiple kisses, nice words, right before betrayal. I I had a moment of frankness with my pastor this, this afternoon. I haven't been in the church too long, but I've been here long enough to see people who say... The greatest things, make the greatest promises, and then a week later, sometimes even less, walk out cursing the men of God who I've entrusted my life to. We do not want to be those people. We have to be those who walk in repentance and walk in the will of God. Let's go ahead and go to verse 17. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the officers... Of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared, and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. Come on, man. Your personal repentance 
can lessen the severity of judgment on your own family. Not eliminate it, but lessen it. Take that in for a minute. The ultimate act of selfishness, selfish behavior, is to be obstinate and cause the destruction of your city, your family, your sons, when you could save their lives through real, genuine, obedient repentance. Zedekiah, Zedekiah won't surrender to the Babylonians because he's not surrendered to God and he will never obey men on earth when he's in rebellion to God. Come on. I want you to rest on that as we go to 18 and 19. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be handed over to the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape it in their hands. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. We're going to keep reading for a while, but I, I can't help but comment on this. Poor leaders, they always avoid accountability for their own actions. That's true of presidents. That's true of a lot of things. This man is doing to Jeremiah the very thing he's claiming that he's scared Jews will do to him. Can somebody say red herring? Let's keep reading in verse 20. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Red herring. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. (laughs) Then it will go well with you. Your life will be spared. But if you refuse, refuse to surrender, this is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out, of, out to the officials of the king of Babylon. I'm sure they'll treat them real nice. <laughs> Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you. Those trusted friends of yours, your feet are sunk in the mud. Mm-hmm. Your friends have deserted you. Did you catch that? Yeah. Whose feet are sunk in the mud now? <laughs> Zedekiah's. See, the pit dug for Jeremiah, well, it was nothing compared to the pit that Zedekiah's actions dug for himself. Notice the same measure that you use to others. Well, that's the measure it's paid back into your lap. If you'd like to read more about that, you can read about that in Luke 6, 37 through 38. If you're still hungry for more of that, you can read about it in Obadiah 15 where we're assured that that is true for every man of every nation, regardless of where you come from. Okay? Uh, Let's pick up in verse 23. All your wives and children will be brought brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon. And this this city will be burned down. Listen to me, leaders of homes. If, If you have somebody in your care, then make eye contact with me. If you will not repent for yourself, perhaps you could find the chutzpah to repent to preserve the lives of your family that you're ruining. Come on. Can you not get hold of that? A father who sins brings his entire family down the drain with him. I know you love to think of it individually, but we have sinful leaders of our nation, and it will cause our whole nation to go down the drain. The same is true of your house. Okay, it is time to get right in the house of God. Your yeah. children's lives depend upon it. A generational curse is not actually a mystical thing. It's what happens when sin is allowed to dwell in a home and daddy sins, so son learns to sin in the same way, so grandson learns to sin in the same way. It has to stop. Yeah. It has to stop right here. Well, I don't know why Johnny does this. I do because his daddy is a cornal toad. Yeah. 
That's why. Okay? It needs to stop here and now. Zedekiah has a chance to prevent the rape, the murder, the destruction of his city and the families in his city. And he is too, and I mean this word, damned prideful to submit to what God wants to do. And there's going to be untold suffering because of it. And he's been warned for 40 years. Okay, that's, that's the context of what is happening here. Yeah. But I've pastored long enough to see the same thing happen in three generations of families. Let's pick up in verse 24. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Do not let anyone know about this conversation or you may die. If the officials hear that I talk with you and they come to you and say, Tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us or we will kill you. Then tell them, I was pleading, to, pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. So let's compare Zedekiah with somebody here. Let's compare him with Nicodemus. Both of these men came secretly, which is essentially what's happening. A secret's being told. Now, Jesus never outed Nicodemus. He never told on him. But Nicodemus eventually stood up for the truth. Yeah, he did. Come on. He eventually stood up. Zedekiah does not. He never stands up. And Jeremiah is not about to lie. Lest you think that's what's about to happen. He's not going to lie here. He is under no obligation to say anything that is not directed by the Lord. In fact, Jesus even does this before Herod. This is Luke 23, 7 through 10. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle, like a court jester. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Jesus, in the same way as Jeremiah, felt no obligation to speak Unless he was directed by the Lord. And so Jesus didn't in this case. So let's pick up in verse uh, 27. We're going to move forward. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him. And he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more of him. For no one had heard his conversation with the king. So what was Jeremiah concerned with? He was concerned about his own death in the house of Jonathan. And... This is all that he chose to reveal in his conversations with the officials. So, if you look at this situation, rather than impugn Jeremiah's character... As some commentators do. Yeah, Yeah. nearly all of them did that we read today. Why don't we examine our own character tonight? If you were in a similar situation, and you were mistreated uh, by somebody like Zedekiah the king, and you uh, you were put in a situation that you could impugn somebody else's character... What kind of nasty things might have come out of your mouth in this situation? You see, Jeremiah actually said exactly what the king told him to say, and it was still the truth. Let's continue in verse 28, and we're going to read all the way through verse 2. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. 
is important in verse 2. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of the Zedekiah's 11th year. Now, what you might not catch is that is a very specific date. We would call, call it the ninth of Av. Mm. Now, the ninth of Av is very interesting throughout history. Things just tend to go down on the ninth of Av for Israel. I don't know if we have this on the slide. We do. We do? Uh, yes. But on the ninth of Av, the spies returned with a bad report. Both holy temples were destroyed on the ninth of Av. The Battle of Betar was lost, which is the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, yeah. 9th of Av. The Romans plowed the Beit Hamikdash. Hamikdash? Yeah. Yes, the plowing of the temple complex. Yeah, that temple is plowed, the, the whole complex. The 9th of Av. The Jews were expelled from England, 9th of Av. The Jews were banished from Spain, 9th of Av. Both world wars began on the 9th of Av. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And so here, we have the city walls being broken through in Zedekiah's day on the 9th of Av. It's more than just interesting. It attests to what we've been saying about the pattern of prophecy. Why do you think these things keep happening on the 9th of Av? It's because God is speaking a message through the repetitious pattern of this date. You're going to have to get with my will and what I want to do on earth or there will continue to be the world's worst tribulations. And that doesn't make England innocent or Spain innocent any more than it makes Babylon innocent. They're simply a hired razor to do exactly what God wants and that shave his priestly nation. Now, when you see repetitive patterns happening in your life, what is your response to them? Are you slow to understand? Do you think something mystical is happening to you? think it's strange or do you go you know what repentance is the answer i better get with the will of god hey let's pick up in verse three Look, aside from the names that are humorous in English, these are bad dudes. And I most mean, of them are titles. Th- 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 this is a scary event. These are the men of Babylon standing before Jerusalem. What I want to key in on, though, is where they're taking their seats. It's the middle gate. Any of you catch that? The middle gate is what it said. Yeah. I'll show you a slide that contains some rabbinical commentary on where the middle gate was. So in summary... Rashi says that it's the East Gate. Anybody know another name for the East Gate? The Golden Gate, the Messiah Gate. The King's Gate. The site of the entrance of the true king. Jesus would walk through this very gate. It's the same site that marks the worst behavior of any king in Israel. One whose name is righteousness is behaving poorly and it's causing Babylon to walk through the east gate, the king's gate. But it's the same place that Christ would walk through himself and will return and walk through again. Let's pick up in four and some of these details are going to build. When Zedekiah came of Judah and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by the way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed towards the Arabs. Well, at least in the end, he found his courage, right? No, talk about the captain abandoning the ship. Yeah. And where is, he, where is he headed to? 
down to the Arabah. That's the Dead Sea area. Well, that's fitting. He's leaving the throne of God and running to the place of Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment and destruction. But that's not, that's not the whole picture here. Okay, The whole picture here is you're going to find out in the coming verses he's actually going to be caught in a specific place on the way to the Arabah. It's called the Plains of Jericho, which is, of course, where Israel entered the Promised Land. So as you're, as you're hearing these next few verses, start to think of a highway, okay? And at one end of it is the arrival point of Jesus. That's the east gate. And at the other is the entry point of the nation into the land. Those are two beautiful things, aren't they? Yeah. Pick up in verse 5. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Ammon, where he pronounced sentence on him. So catch this. The site of his defection was the east gate, the one the Messiah walks through. The site of his capture was on the plains of Jericho where Israel entered the promised land. This cannot be a coincidence. Look, to quote Elder Charlie, this brother is on the right road, but he is sure headed the wrong direction. This is the definition of backsliding. It's moving in the opposite direction of God's intended path for the nation. Now, if I had time, and I don't, I would tell you that Jesus took this exact route in the reverse direction. Yeah, he does. And he came to bring peace to Israel, to establish the throne of God, precisely because men, and in this case, Zedekiah, were headed the wrong direction. He will plunge into the middle of your disaster and your destruction and he will turn that thing around for you. But it starts with wanting his will more than your own will. And if you're committed to your will, you can take it straight to hell. But if you're committed to the kingdom of God, man, can he turn the tide for you? Now look at what happens in verse 6. Do y'all feel bad his eyes are put out? (laughs) His eyes failed him a long, long time before this. Much like Samson. But he's actually a lot worse than Samson. At least Samson could be said to have done some things for the Lord. Now, some of you that are biblically astute go, No, 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 wait, wait! Zedekiah repents in the end! Well, congratulations, his sons are still dead. The wages of sin are death. And sometimes, death of the people that are around you. Yeah? Justin's going to take us through Proverbs 10, 16. says, the wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings, interesting how it puts it, earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way of life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Do you see how there is something earned by the man who does these things? And then there's something that is done to the people around him, whether he's showing him the way of life or leading others astray. Sin leads to death, and it leads to death to the people around you. In fact, Romans 6.22 
through 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Thank God in this house we have been set free from sin and we have become slaves to God so that we can give that to those around us. Did you find something good in the locations? Did did, did you catch something there? Was that revelation? Would you like something even better than that? Help us out, Nick. Let's read 8 through 10, Renzo. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, Some of the poor people? Okay, finish that out. Who owned nothing. And at that time, he gave them vineyards and fields. Wow. So you mean that we learn in this passage that the poor people actually were the ones that inherited the kingdom? That's incredible. We, we have to read Matthew chapter 5. It's almost like if you give up everything you have, then you will gain the kingdom. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Sinners. The poor, they were the first to be baptized. The first to be baptized in the plains of Jericho at Beth Barah. It was the place where Israel actually entered the land and the poor people got baptized first. And also the place Zedekiah loses his eyes. It was also the place that King Zedekiah was judged. Yeah. Do you remember the indentured slaves from Jeremiah 34 that we studied from last class? Yeah. Yeah. Those indentured slaves are now the only survivors in the land. Come on. Yeah, the poorest of the poor, the slaves are now the only ones that are in the land. It's when a man recognizes that he is a slave to sin, that he can be set free. Come on, church. Come on. Consider 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 through 10. The Lord brings death and he makes alive. Yes! He brings down to the grave. And he raises up. Yes! The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Yes! He raises the poor from the dust. Come on! He the needy from the ash He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Lord, the Most High, will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the earth at the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This should be written on our stones. And more 
life. Free to be wealthy, to be the most successful, or to be poor, dependent, and wholeheartedly full of the will of God so that he can lift you out of the ash heap and place you where he wants you. Yeah, decide whether you want to win in the game of Monopoly or whether you want to win in the kingdom. Okay? You can get a child tax credit every time you pass go. <laughs> 11 to 14 for me, brother. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, Man, I, I can hear in your responses, some of you are recognizing Yeah, it. some of you got it. We're yeah. proud of you. I love what Peyton just read because one barren woman had a heart change before the Lord and it affected the generation after her. Yeah. Here, we have three generations. Shaphan is the man, the guy, the one and only, that originally found the book of the law. And he brought it to the king. This one event is still protecting the three righteous generations after him. Yeah. Tito, you hear me? Three righteous That's generations. Right. Amen. Yeah. Saints, it is impossible. You do not have the ability to calculate what a righteous action will yield. Guys, you've got to hear me on this. You don't have the ability to calculate it. Amen. Not just because times are changing rapidly but because our God is a God that multiplies righteousness when we are faithful. Amen. But let me be real frank. You do have the ability to calculate what an unrighteous action, unrighteous life will cost. And this is worth sitting on for a minute because we are on the verge of days ahead that will define whether this was just an amazing church that has become a circus down the road like every church that we came from. Or we're raising up generations of righteousness. Now, I, I, I really don't mean to be negative, but we've used that phrase enough where it brings a bit of nauseam to my ears because that becomes a phrase. Your choice to sin right now affects the children that are sitting around you. We must learn to uphold the law and circumcise our own hearts on a perpetual basis. Like, I'm not okay with the priesthood I am now because it needs to last. What will I hand? When we do this appropriately, the world can get as dark as we want it to, as the world wants to get. Yeah. And you will have men who are standing protecting the righteous and end up governing those that are left in the house of God. Amen. So when you're staring at the will of God, you say, but I don't know what it will cost me if I do that. I don't know how I'm going to afford my house. I don't know how I'm going to educate my kid. I don't know how I'm going to do it. You're right. You don't know what it will cost you. But you sure know in advance what it will cost you to not do the will of God. Exactly. Yeah. It will cost the death of your generation. Yeah. These are not difficult decisions. You don't know what it will cost you to do righteousness. But you do know what it costs you when you are unrighteous. Do you hear how clear that is? Yes. 
We have four minutes and 20 seconds and we are going to finish on time. I want to tell you in verse 15, we're beginning to allude to something that happened prior to Zedekiah getting his vision corrected. I'm loving Obed Malek more and more. He wasn't raptured. No. <laughs> he acted in accordance with God's will, right in the middle of judgment. This servant of the king is an example to every Gentile believer of how we're to behave during Jacob's trouble. He's a Cushite. He's a Gentile. He's a black Gentile. <laughs> and he gets it right. Brother Darkness came through for the team of light. <laughs> We're about to turn this meeting over to the pastors. Perhaps you might reflect on the oak-like example of Jeremiah. Man, that's a high goal to shoot for, isn't it? At 20 years old, he enters into the service of the Lord. He never makes merry or revelment with his friends. He doesn't even get married or have children. He stays solely dedicated to one task. And he never bends. Well, if that's too difficult for you, then perhaps you should reflect on the example of Obed-Melech. His life gives us instruction on what is expected of us as Gentile believers. If that's too difficult for you, perhaps you should be reflecting on the life of Zedekiah. Because his tendencies are more prevalent among us than any of us would like to admit. He's called the king of Israel. He comes. From the line of David, his are the covenants and the promises. But when it counts, he shows no spine to do the will of God. I don't want to finish my life as Zedekiah. I would be proud to be Obed-Melech. But I'm aiming for Jeremiah. Amen. Brothers, aim for perfection. Brothers, our high goal and call is Christ. Around the world, our brothers and sisters, little girls, they're suffering for the kingdom of God. And we suffer for our inability to choose the will of God. This is LCM. Our lives can make a difference. We're aiming for the yellow that is on that map. But it starts with the decisions you make in your home. 
So I'm going to renew an age-old tradition. I've been doing it since our very first service. If what you want is the highest possible aim in Christ, then we want you here. We want to disciple you. We want to help you. If you have no desire for those things, leave now. I told the man Sunday at this altar, it's like, well, I'm offended with Matt. Okay. I'm offended with Wade. So I thought I would talk with you. I don't think you're going to like me much. (laughs) He said, y'all are so controlling. I said, I'm so controlling. I have no idea what your name is. So he told me his name. Said, here's controlling for you. Get with God or get the hell out of here. How does that feel? We do not control people's lives. What we do is decide what we allow in this house. And friends, it is a privilege to be here. Wow. So let's just cut right to it. There are men in this room who have been walking in abject disobedience to God. There's nothing that we as pastors can pray for you about because you just refuse to be obedient. You've dressed it a thousand different ways, but the truth is, is you're failing in the most simple and obvious of obedience. Tonight, your heart should be rent in two by what's going on and what you just heard. If it's not, then you really actually need to check and you need to cry out to God and perhaps he will forgive you. For everyone in the room, you should have heard things tonight that, reali- that made you realize that you've been much more like a reed than you have been an oak of righteousness. Wanting God to sway your direction because you're used to things swaying inside of your own heart. Men and women who will be faithful to pray through the tabernacle and then turn and do exactly opposite of what you just learned there. Never have I gotten past the gates of praise, glorifying God for his character. Never, not one time have I gotten to the bronze altar and began to think about everyone else's sin in this place. That's not where I've ever started. I realized my own condition before God. I'm talking to you, wives, about your own husband. Blaming your husband for your own sin that you walk in. I'm talking about you, men, where you'll say one thing in the tabernacle and go out and be expecting everyone else to bend to you because you're afraid that you can't actually measure up to a Jeremiah-like stance. How gracious is our God to give us a word like this tonight. How can we not respond to what God is doing? Beth, I think it's 1 Samuel 2. Can we we start around verse 8? He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. Church, I've been the poor so many times. And I don't mean financially, I mean one that is broken 
and in need of his constant, constant salvation in my life. This is the God who can take us from where we are and transform us, but it doesn't happen as we stand in the arrogance of our own situation. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Why is good news proclaimed to the poor? It's because their ears are not filled with the wealth of their own will. They're in a state where they are ready to hear the good news because they're ready to do what the good news says to do. Here's what we would like to do and have the opportunity to respond. I'd like for us to pray through the tabernacle together. To get our hearts right before God now. But before you do, I want to challenge you. Have your heart ready to do what God tells you to do yeah. as we do it. When you get to the golden altar and you're partnering with his will, let all abandonment of your will be done way back at the bronze altar so that you can hear correctly what is spoken to you at the golden altar. So let's stand to our feet.